Thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, we're here to discuss end-to-end -end zero trust approach with Samra Kazmi, the chief innovation strategist at RESRG, as well as David Hochhauser, CRO of Telby based cybersecurity firm Hub Security. Uh, we'll start our webinar with a brief introduction as usual to our speakers and then I'll hand over the mic to David and Sama who uh, will present their presentations. Um, and at the end, we'll hold a short Q&A to wrap everything up. So I'd like to remind you as the audience, if you have any questions throughout the discussion, you can drop them in the Q&A section below and you'll get to them at the end. I'm joined now by Samra Kazmi. Hello, Samra. Hello. Um, wonderful. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, just a brief introduction to Samra. Um, for those who don't already know, um, she has spent 25 years in leadership roles on Wall Street and in fintech um, and is the chief innovation strategist at RESRG, a corporate innovation risk advisory, as an award-winning risk executive, a top regtech influencer, and recipient of New York City's inspiring fintech female award. Samra is also an advisor to the Harvard Business Review and a member of Entrepreneur Magazine's Leadership Network. Wow, that's great. Um, a great resume. Uh, she's passionate about the environment and is also founder of the Women in Sustainable Innovation, um, a global community enabling female-founded ventures in sustainability. So welcome so much, Samala. We're happy you could be here. And we're also joined by David Hochhauser, the CRO of Hub Security. Hello, David. Hey, hello. Glad, glad you could be here today. Thanks a lot. And uh, just so you know, I'm, I'm going to um, hand over the stage to Samra in a minute. Um, who's going to share with us her thoughts on zero trust. And then um, we'll hear a bit from myself on uh, uh, an approach to zero trust and what kind of hub solution as an example of that. So um, starting, I think it's uh, now, should I hand it off to uh, Samra? Sure, I was going to introduce you, but um, oh. I think, I, yeah, I do a brief introduction. David is the uh, CRO of Hub Security, a cybertech cybersecurity startup with working on an innovative key management platform designed to protect cryptocurrencies, digital assets, and other highly sensitive non-blockchain information. Um, yeah, take it away, Sama. Great, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a great uh, pleasure to be here. Um, and I am going to start sharing my screen. So just let me know if you can... Um, see it. So um, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. And I know zero trust, many of you must be familiar. I know this is a sophisticated audience um, from um, uh, many of you come from the zero trust uh, background uh, or a cyber background. So many of you are familiar with zero trust. There's been a lot of chatter around it, a lot of intrigue, a lot of presentations going around. Um, and I wanted to bring to you the risk perspective. Um, I wanted to just, uh, I know um, Sterney did a very um, uh, wonderful um, introduction uh, of me, but I also wanted to let you know, Resurge is actually a corporate innovation firm. We build roadmaps and frameworks for, uh, for any types of uh, risk management, uh, any types of risk um, solutions. So I just uh, wanted to bring you our perspective as we've been helping uh, a lot of institutions um, build out their roadmaps and various types of frameworks uh, in order 
order to get to zero trust. Um, so let's begin. And I won't belabor on this a lot, but I do want to set the stage with the big picture because um, it is important to put everything in context. Cybercrime in 2020 has kind of exploded. Really, uh, you know, the criminals have taken um, uh, advantage of the disruption globally uh, by the pandemic. And um, some of the things that I, I will highlight, it takes 200 days to detect a cyber attack. So the perpetrators could be in your network for, for 200 days, um, as we have seen with the with the solar winds attack or uh, the Russian hack, as some of you might uh, be familiar with, um, that, that was just uncovered and is still unfolding. Um, uh, that has been actually ongoing since perhaps March or maybe even earlier, and we don't even know how elaborate it is and whether it's still ongoing or have the perpetrators left and where the tentacles go. So it takes a long time to actually detect um, these uh, very, very stealthy attackers. Ransomware attacks are getting even more complex with the introduction of RAS, which is ransomware as a service. So these are organizations that you can actually um, uh, hire to conduct ransomware attacks on whomever you would want that to happen. And they're extremely sophisticated. They have a full organizational structure and they have uh, obviously a lot of stealth and, and methods that cannot be detected easily. Uh, supply chain attacks, which is again, um, uh, the solar winds uh, attack is really a supply chain attack, the Russian hack as, as you might know. So um, uh, basically solar winds had uh, um, uh, a software called Orion, um, which went through a patch update and all of Orion's uh, or many of Orion's customers actually uh, updated um, or uh, updated the software. However, the perpetrators actually were able to penetrate, uh, um, to actually penetrate that vulnerability and get not in only into the SolarWinds network, but into the networks of anyone who uh, uh, who was using Orion and actually went through that uh, patch update. Um, now, there's a lot more that we don't know since this is all unfolding. Um, so, uh, so that's uh, you know something to to keep in mind. Uh, but supply chain at attacks are really also gaining a lot of momentum. Um, this is just one that has uh, that is so high profile that is being reported. And uh, but there are definitely other smaller ones, or maybe even bigger ones that have not been detected or publicized. Um, nation states are getting extremely aggressive. Um, and uh, again, pointing out to solar winds, um, and then organized crime gangs are accounting for 55% of attacks. And most importantly, there's a talent shortage. You know, um, there are about 1 million open cybersecurity roles, uh, and, and there are few people to fill them. Um, and finally, 77% of insider threats are related to employees sharing information. And we're going to talk more about insider threats going, going forward. So 
what do attackers want? Uh, and again, this is very fundamental, but data is the heart of this presentation. I wanted to kind of say that um, there's all kind of nation states are really interested in the geopolitical intel intelligence. Uh, then there's like out of China, you have a lot of intellectual property and trade secrets. Um, and otherwise the organized crime gangs are more into financial data and customer data. However, numbers don't lie. Cybersecurity spending is going to exceed $1 trillion in 2021. If you can wrap your head around that number, it's a huge number. However, the damage related to cybercrime is projected to hit $6 trillion annually by 2021. That's an even bigger number. Uh, but uh, while I don't want to tri trivialize this big number, I do want you to remember that this number can almost be meaningless because only 1% of cybercrime does uh, is reported, um, mostly because it's not detected, um, or by the time it's detected and reported, it's, it's way too late. So cybersecurity has remained elusive despite the money being spent on it. So what's wrong with the picture? The traditional approach has fallen short. Uh, and what is the traditional approach? It is perimeter-based. Um, and as all of you, most of you know, the original network, which was basically um, invented maybe, you know, several decades ago, was where uh, we only um, used computers in the office. Um, you uh, went into your office nine to five, you used the, the computer there, you logged in there, you left everything there. You did not have access to files um, on the network and, and your computer uh, back at home. Um, so everything was done on premise um, with enterprise applications. There was a, a, a very controllable attack surface because the perimeter was defined. Everything was within that perimeter. It was very static um, because there weren't too many updates, um, patch updates. There wasn't, you know, things like software as a service and um, things like that. So there wasn't um, too much going on, and it was fairly reactive. So if there was ever a threat, um, it took a while to detect it and also then to manage it. And it was, and in general, as you can see, this is really a very closed, um, closed network. The modern network, however, has uh, completely been changed with um, the introduction of so many new uh, and emerging technologies. There is a lot of device complexity because we have not just third-party devices, we have um, what you call bring your own device. You have um, um, internet of things, uh, you have also apps and APIs on which data can be stored uh, up in the cloud. Um, there is um, a software as a service. There is uh, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service. You have partners um, that you work with and, and they are constantly um, you know, transferring data back and forth. Um, so there's a lot going on. And this is not where this ends. As you can see, you know, the partner may have uh, may have other connections uh, would definitely have other connections so this perimeter keeps expanding um, and it's it's really 
uh, undefined. And because of that, the attack surface is expanding. It's really open and porous and it's, it's very dynamic. You've got constant updates going on in your software. There are patches um, and there are new devices uh, going on um, and there are new uh, endpoints that need to be secured. So basically perimeter security, um, uh, the basic principle there is anyone outside the perimeter is untrusted, but anyone internally is trusted. However, um, as I showed to you earlier on, 77% of internal threats um, arise because some employee has mistakenly shared information or downloaded something from the web uh, that has corrupted um, uh, the, uh, the network. Um, so um, uh, basically that is the failure of perimeter security inside access is not always benign. Uh, modern attacks are from the inside out like downloading something from the web, for instance, um, trusted system brings attackers in and uh, internal access is loosely regulated. So if someone were to ever enter uh, your um, your network, they're, uh, they're very, E, uh, they're able to very easily move around that network once they're they're in through an employee's inbox. They can get into uh, uh, Microsoft Teams. They can get access to some other drive, uh, and so on and so forth. So moving within a network is also pretty easy. Um, so basically, the perimeter is the wrong parameter, um, and we need to move on from that thinking. So it's time to look at cybersecurity through a fresh lens. And that is where zero trust comes in. Never trust, always verify. That is the moniker given by Forrester Research. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of background, in 2009, Forrester Research introduced the zero trust concept. Um, and uh, nothing really happened between then and I'd say uh, 2019 is when it started to gain some momentum, um, but really, um, uh, except for 2013, where Google developed its own Beyond Corp framework, which is really the poster child of um, something that's based off of the guiding principles of zero trust. However, in, um, uh, because of the pandemic in 2020, um, we've seen uh, more and more interest in what Zero Trust can do for enterprise security. And uh, in August of 2020, we also saw NIST uh, release its standards for Zero Trust architecture. Um, and the federal government, including the Department of Dr uh, uh, Defense, uses Zero Trust as a key piece of its long-term security strategy. So it is a formidable framework. What is zero trust? Zero trust is strategically focused on addressing lateral threat movement within the network by leveraging micro segmentation and granular en enforcement based on user context, data access controls, location, app, and device posture. Um, now I know this is uh, this is a lot, so let's just break this down. This is basically what you know Forrester's definition um, for it. 
So a zero trust architecture abolishes the idea of a trusted network inside a defined corporate per perimeter. Um, it mandates that uh, enterprises create micro perimeters of control around their sensitive data um, assets um, really to enable business. Um, and basically this is a framework and set of principles for architecting um, uh, security in a modernized, uh, uh, modernized way for a modernized network. Um, so there is really um, the way security is enabled um, in, um, in, in an enterprise is what uh, Zero Trust actually um, um, encourages. Um, so there's really no notion of automatic trust. Uh, nothing, is, uh, nothing is trusted, no device, no URL, no network. Uh, everything needs to be evaluated and monitored, um, not only at initiation, but throughout the session, okay? Um, so uh, these are the five laws of, uh, of zero trust and some of it can, is kind of repetitive, uh, but, uh, but the things that I do want um, uh, you to take away that um, are, are really, uh, you know, there are internal and external threats at all times and you've got to be um, uh, aware of that and assume that the network is always hostile. Um, and there need to be policies that are dynamic. So data policies, you know, um, uh, browser policies, um, uh, any type of authentication policies have to be constantly, have to be constantly evaluated. They need to be dynamic uh, and have to be calculated from as many sources as possible. So basic tenet of zero trust is ubiquitous least privilege. Grant access to, to anyone who needs access, but make it very, very specific. So for me, working as a, um, as a risk analyst in the credit department, uh, working on the auto loan portfolio, for instance, I should only have access to the portfolio that I, the data for the portfolio that I am uh, I am responsible for, not the entire drive. And I actually, I've worked at large banks where you know you have uh, pretty much open access to the entire um, uh, entire credit drive within your region. Um, so that's very important to know. Um, so the network has evolved from you know this traditional network we've gone to what we are seeing the current state um, this would be the zero trust network where the individual would be at the heart of the network so the zero trust network is contextual so roles based um, location based identity based um, it is user centric um, so the user is really at the heart of it um, there are micro perimeters that are defined uh, and micro segmentation done. Um, there, the attack surface obviously is, is reduced because you are only, um, uh, uh, because the, the network is really only associated with an individual um, and they uh, and and the um, drives and the devices that they have access to. 
um, and it is very predictive. So if this individual's network is penetrated, you can easily predict where the uh, where the openings are and how this can travel to the larger network, if at all. Uh, and you can immediately quickly arrest that um, that compromise. Um, so it's also very dynamic, obviously, because uh, dynamic not in the sense that, dynamic, obviously, in the sense that you've got uh, updates happening and and uh, and and uh, there's uh, other software that you're using, but dynamic also in the sense that there are policies that are um, that are uh, that need to be constantly updated or constantly be reviewed. Uh, the um, user access needs to be constantly evaluated, monitored, reviewed um, on on almost a constant basis. Um, the data has to be um, uh, reviewed, not just data at rest and data in transit, but where data is being stored and where data is being Com, uh, com, computed, so um, there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of dynamic elements in within the zero trust framework, uh, but it is very user centric, and that is what it what makes it uh, highly secure. So why is um, why is this um, framework gaining so much interest at this time? Well, as we mentioned, there's been a lot of uh, emerging technologies that have now all of a sudden proliferated uh, our enterprises. So the cloud, uh, even though cloud adoption was slow, uh, adoption for um, a, a lot of APIs and software that reside on the cloud was, uh, was uh, much faster. So there are a lot of collaboration tools, especially now in uh, the pandemic, people are working on Slack and uh, Monday.com and things like that, um, there is a platformification of our businesses. Um, there's obviously device complexity that I mentioned earlier. There's bring your own device. There's third-party device. There's managed versus unmanaged device. There's internet of things. There are evolving regulations that require data be protected, for instance, CCPA and GDPR, um, and workforce dynamics. So you've got remote uh, workforce. You've got consultants. You've got uh, contractors hoteling, uh, you know, you've got insider threats. There's third parties, there's partners, vendors, so many others. Um, and then, of course, there's transformation going on, especially in the large incumbent organizations, regardless of, of which industry you, um, you talk about. So there's business transformation, there's operational transformation, a lot of digital transformation going on. And obviously, the global pandemic has accelerated adoption not just of these emerging technologies but um, but also um, that of um, of zero trust so what are the benefits of zero trust uh, one of the things that we've heard is that there's increased productivity um, because um, there aren't uh, if, if done right uh, and once uh, you know, we'll discuss this uh, uh, later. But zero trust is more of a journey. So at 
some point in the maturity of your journey, uh, there will be fewer and fewer, and at some point, no passwords. That actually helps uh, the productivity um, level. You're not constantly logging in and out and being timed out and so on and so forth. Um, so there, that's one area. Um, and then access to whatever an employee needs is right at hand. They don't need to constantly ask for permission. While permissioning is happening in the background, they're not waiting to be permissioned. Um, security is ubiquitous. There there's obviously reduced complexity just because you've kind of uh, isolated everything to the user level. Everything is, uh, you know, very contextualized, um, and the threat surface has has been reduced. Um, it obviously enables the business. Um, it's application user centric. It's very predictive, as I mentioned earlier, and um, you know, while you can say that there's not been much of a study done on return on investment um, right now because we're still at very early stages. Uh, it is expected that you know there will be um, exponential returns on investment because um, uh, organizations are constantly updating um, their structures, their their um, uh, cybersecurity uh, postures, um, as well as constantly paying out fines or um, because of various data breaches or, um, uh, or doing other things to uh, pr protect themselves. Um, so there is going to be a, a lot, you know, of course, also on the reputational risk uh, perspective, it's, it's, uh, it's a huge win. But what zero trust is not, and I've seen that there's a lot of confusion. People think that, oh, we will, um, you know, get the best piece of software and plug it in and we are done. And that really it is not the case. Um, this is, as I mentioned, not just about um, software, but there's policies involved. There's actually a lot of segmentation that needs to be done. And there's also a behavioral element because we are involving people. We also need to ensure that business enablement is done. Uh, and for that, there is um, the least amount of friction. Uh, this is uh, you know, not an IT-only project. Um, and again, we're going to discuss a little bit more about that. And it's not a one-off project. It's very uh, infrastructure-centric. Uh, and it's not infrastructure-centric. So beyond uh, Corp, I'll, I'll just quickly go through this. Um, uh, their, um, they've successfully been able to do this, and their goal was to have every Google employee work successfully from untrusted networks without the use of a VPN, and they've been able to do that. Um, and quickly, I'll go through the Zero Trust Roadmap. Zero Trust is an iterative journey. Uh, what you need to do to make it successful is really aim for cyber resilience. We cannot be 100% cyber secure. We need to sort of admit that to ourselves. But the thing is, how do we develop a cyber how do we develop cyber resilience is by developing a strategy that aligns to business and risk. Um, so this is really a, a, a long-term initiative. Um, it's complex, it's cross-functional. There's a lot of uh, change management going on. Um, uh, but what you need to do is focus on agility, focused on uh, culture and business outcomes. Um, and the way to actually access 
accelerate this is and gain um, approval from like sponsors in your organization is to maybe piggyback on some of the existing transformation projects. If there is a cloud project going on within your organization, maybe try to like piggyback on that. Or if there's some larger digital transformation going on internally, uh, perhaps that's another way to actually um, uh, get the zero trust initiative going. Um, so this is a framework and I don't, we, we don't have time, but I will just kind of touch on this. There are just five basic tenets, um, the data, devices, people, networks, and workloads. And data really is the at the heart of it. It is the most important part of it. Uh, as I mentioned, we really have to protect the data. We have to ensure that, uh, you know, uh, data is secure, whether it's in transit, um, uh, at rest, or how it's being uh, stored, how it's being consumed, how it's being computed. Um, and then there, there's obviously there's got to be some uh, governance structures around it, um, depending on what you're using as computation platforms, you've got to also make sure that that's, um, that, that's, that's secure too. Um, and you've got to have dynamic, dynamic policies, um, standard operating procedures and ensure that you know any regulations um, that need to be uh, met are uh, done so. Uh, and then the challenges that I would say really are uh, you know, in large organizations specifically, uh, people don't know who owns it. Is should it be the CIO, the CTO, the CCO, the CISO, um, the CRO? How is that going to be structured? So there are different ways of doing that, and we actually work. Uh, we work with a few um, uh, organizations and have kind of rationalized different types of um, structures. Um, there's got to be because it's a cross-functional. Um, event, there's a stake, there's stakeholder management um, that needs to be done. There's tons of stakeholders. And then there's legacy technology um, that needs to be contended with. And that's, you know, we saw pre-pandemic, a lot of resistance to change because of legacy te technology, but now we had to change. Um, there's culture, obviously a lot of it, uh, most of it is really driven by the people, by our employees. Um, so ensuring that. And I, uh, return on investment, obviously, this is the flip side of what I mentioned earlier. We don't know. We don't know what the return of investment would be. We don't know what, uh, uh, how many attacks we would in the future uh, have stopped and how that return of investment uh, can be calculated. Um, so that is, again, you know, if you want to do convince uh, a senior sponsor in the organization uh, could be a challenge. Um, there are not enough zero trust pioneers. Google uh, Beyond Corp is, but um, uh, I have to caveat that with um, the fact that Google did a complete rip and replace of their infrastructure. They were at the time a much younger company than many of the incumbents that we see. So uh, they did make a significant investment, um, but they were able to, you know, it's almost, uh, I would say seven or eight years that they, they, they're going, um, you know, they've implemented it and, and, and seem to be functioning well with it. And there's obviously no end state. It's a journey because um, things continue to change. Um, there are new technologies emerging, business models change, etc. So you need to be strategic and tactical at the same time. Um, 
so the one the other thing I want to say is get the basics right first. Make sure that you've done all your asset um, and device management and various other you know user inventory uh, inventorying all your assets, networks, device drives, etc. Those need to be done before you even embark on your journey uh, for zero trust. But the other thing you need to do is strengthen your expertise in emerging risks because these are what need to be managed within zero trust amongst uh, you know the identity and other piece of it so uh, ensuring that you have uh, frameworks um, for this and uh, and specific expertise that addresses uh, these types of risks so that's actually the end of my presentation I may have gone over by five minutes but I, I did want to make sure that I give you um, a quick, rundown. Um, this is, of course, a very broad topic. Um, and we could maybe have like a week long seminar and still not get uh, get everywhere. But I did want to make sure that you um, get all the information um, or enough information to um, maybe alleviate some of the confusion. If you need um, to understand more, if you need uh, to uh, learn more about the frameworks and the roadmaps that we create, uh, feel free to reach out to me. You could connect uh, with me on LinkedIn, um, or follow our company page on um, uh, on LinkedIn as well. And uh, 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 you can sign up uh, on our website for any updates. And um, then um, certainly you can reach me via email um, as well. So with this, I'm going to um, stop sharing uh, and I will um, hand it over to David. Okay. Uh, okay thank you thank so much, you, Sarah. Oh. That was wonderful. Okay. Yeah, thanks. That, that was great. Actually, I got so absorbed in it, I forgot I was presenting next. I was just listening and, <laughs> and learned quite a bit from there. So I appreciate it. Um, and just as a reminder, so I'm going to, uh, I'll spend a few minutes on a couple of topics now, and then there'll be quest times for questions and answers at the end of it. So uh, just keep them friendly. This isn't a political convention. Um, let me just share my screen. And I have just a few slides. Okay, that should help. Okay, good. Okay. Um, you know, first, um, just one interesting perspective um, or kind of amusing, I was thinking about the other day. Um, and it, it reminded me, the zero trust reminded me of Ronald Reagan's uh, famous trust but verify statement. And I found it very amusing um, that trust but verify is sufficient really to protect the world from nuclear annihilation. Uh, but it doesn't work to prevent someone from actually getting illegal access to your IT systems. So imagine trusting everyone to tell you who they are. And then after they access your systems, uh, just verify it was them. So obviously that wouldn't go over very well. Um, so just something amusing about moving past that. Um, let me take a few minutes to discuss an aspect of zero trust security and how Hub handles that. Okay. So uh, where are we today? And you heard a lot from Summer about where we are and kind of bringing it down a little bit to the next level. And in general, um, a lot of the privacy and protection besides using the perimeter is, is it's uh, 
See, technology is decades old and we've just been adding to it, substituting, integrating different layers of protection um, for every new threat. And also to uh, move from a trusted security perimeter to a zero trust model um, that kind of includes concepts such as micro perimeters, role-based access um, and layering this on gets extremely cumbersome and costly. And actually parts of it may be fundamentally flawed and limited in its approach, especially um, for your most sensitive data and applications. Um, so, so what do you need to do? Um, there's a new approach out there uh, called confidential computing that I think is the next critical step in zero trust. Um, so first let me explain what is confidential computing. Um, there are three pillars uh, from a data perspective. Um, one, you're protecting data at rest, um, in transit, and then in use. And at rest and in transit has been the traditional focus of security for a while. Um, but it's not enough because now you look at the data, the applications, um, they're hackable while they're being used as well. And protecting data and the applications while they're being used um, is, is especially tough. One, because the applications obviously need to have the data in clear in order to compute. Um, so confidential computing and kind of reading from the slide, um, as you could read, is, is a new security approach. It essentially isolates the data um, the specific functions are an entire application in a protected computing environment during processing. And it's accessible only to authorized code and invisible to anything and anyone else. Um, so the good news is there are practical solutions beginning to um, emerge. And of course, um, the best approach, of course, we think is obviously Hub's, you know, Hub's platform. So let me just give you a brief um, explanation of, of Hub's platform and how we handle it and how it really does fit in in this whole uh, zero trust environment. Um, and we look at it as confidential computing. It's actually a broader platform that uh, includes really a very broad array of security mechanisms. And it assumes um, everything is hackable outside this environment um, one way or another. And Hub's confidential computing platform is in essence, it's only its um, own extremely protected micro perimeter. I mean, you've heard you know, what micro perimeter is uh, all about, really getting rid of the perimeter, but it is its own micro perimeter. It protects everything um, regardless of what's going on outside of it. And the basic concept is it trusts no one, um, not even those using it. So, um, the platform will be kind of your primary element of your whole defense strategy for very sensitive information and applications. And when we say not even those using it, think about the statistic you heard where, you know, 77% of insider, you know, of, of breaches are inside a threat employees passing information from one to the other. So let me just explain a little bit technically um, a couple of things around it. So one, um, it protects the data if you look at it coming into the box. So the data in motion, I mean, the keys that we use to encrypt that data coming in, um, we, it's literally all sitting in a FIPS level four compatible hardware security module. You, you, level four is if you tamper with it, it shuts down and wipes the thing out. Um, you get through that, you now need to look, there's a built-in hardware firewall 
So it's protecting the perimeter of the box, literally. Um, so every inbound message is checked. And not only that, we actually check even the messages going outbound to see if there's any abnormality as well as an extra level of, of precaution. Um, everything that's in here is in its own secure enclave. So if you multiple parties can actually not access and view each other's information, they can't even access the application. So uh, not even, literally not even a system administrator can get to the data or app. So if you're running this inside your environment, the biggest threat you have is inside a threat. And this actually protects you even from your own systems administrators who have no access to the data or applications that's run inside of here. Um, the other piece that you need is to deal with zero trust access control and, and authorization. And how is that enforced? And the role-based access and all the policies around it are also literally defined in their own secure enclave within the same kind of box micro perimeter that you have. And to make sure anybody coming in, the ultimate authenticator is if you take such a uh, FIPS secured, um, we have a mini hardware security module with its own display. So whatever you see is literally what you're signing. So anything outside this environment, again, we don't trust, here we have a mechanism of getting into it, seeing it, authorizing who the person is and what you see is actually what, what you're signing off on. Um, the other leg of it is the data at rest, right? You need to protect that. That's also secured and protected in secure enclave within the same box. There is a mechanism as well, if you have large external databases you wanna know that we can actually protect those at the same time. Um, so um, as mentioned, um, it literally trusts no one outside of its control, um, which is in essence what zero trust is. It's its own environment, its own micro perimeter and, and controls everything in there to, in order to enable you to give you kind of zero trust what you want. Um, that's kind of, as I said, I keep mine very brief just to give you a brief idea of our perspective on zero trust and what we provide. And from that perspective, after that, um, I'll hand it back to Sterney. Wonderful, thank you, David. Um, as usual, if you guys have questions, um, now would be the time to, to ask them. And um, we already got in a few, but thank you so much to both Sama and David um, for touching on some really relevant and fascinating topics. Uh, and I'm so glad that we got the time to cover them all today. Um, well, we, they all require a bit of deeper discussion. Um, I'm glad that uh, we could cover what we did and uh, hopefully you guys can follow Samra and David follow some of their work, follow them on LinkedIn and um, hear what more they have to say because this is not a, a, a small topic. Um, but now I'd like to take the opportunity to open the floor uh, to our attendees. So anyone who might have a question Feel free to drop it in the Q&A section below. Um, so we've already gotten a few here. And keep an eye on the time. We've got about 15 minutes. So let's try to see how many we can get through. Um, OK, I see some questions going in the chat. That's all right. So we'll start with um, the first one we have here, um, which is for you, Samra. And, um, Somebody would like to know, what is the one thing to focus on when an institution is starting out on their zero trust journey? 
realize that. Um, that's such a good question, actually, uh, because you know it can be overwhelming uh, when you go through present even presentations like mine, which are like. 30 minutes and trying to break everything down. Um, and uh, it, it can be confusing to where you start. So I would say start uh, with the basics. Uh, ensure that you, uh, you know, you've got your cyber hygiene down properly. So you have accounted for all your devices, you've got, you've taken inventory of users, devices, networks, uh, endpoints, etc. And then also, uh, you know, any kind of uh, ensure that you've got your cyber policies um, uh, set out correctly, any trainings that you need to do. So I would say focus on the basics first and then move on to uh, the, the larger strategy and the, uh, the um, roadmap. That's how I would, I would do it. David, anything to add to that? No, that's, that, that's fine. I, that was good. I was reading the other question for a second as well, so I apologize for that. Okay, do you have one that you, that, uh, you want to answer right off the bat? No, go ahead. You can uh, feel free, continue in the order that you have them coming in. Okay, great. So we have another question here um, from an anonymous attendee that asks, does zero trust equate to no VPN? Um, and I think you've touched on this in your presentation already. Uh, yeah, I, I can take that. So, um, like I said, zero trust is a journey. So at the, um, you know, at the I'd say mature end of the journey, you would not want to have VPNs because that's again, another way that you can get perpetrators in. So the goal would, would obviously be to eliminate VPNs, maybe have SSO, so there are no passwords, you're not constantly logging into Salesforce or Microsoft Teams and things like that. Uh, there's just one SSO and you can actually access everything through it. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, I've lived through migrations from VPN to others. Besides that, it gets rid of the perimeter. It's actually also more convenient from an end user perspective. Exactly. It does make it a lot easier to use. Great. Thank you. And we have another question here uh, from James. How complicated is the assignment and maintenance of privileges um, within a zero trust environment? Um, how complicated? Well, I would say if you have uh, done the inventories, okay, um, and you have done the segmentation properly, um, you are able to, uh, uh, so you've got to be very thorough with that, right? Who belongs in which region, uh, which business function, et cetera, et cetera. And then based on that, uh, it becomes uh, fairly easy. And of course, there's software out there that you can use, which makes it even more easier. Uh, but it, uh, but you need to do uh, some work before that, obviously. Yeah. And I would say from what I've seen, there Thank is you. software that the, the biggest part of the effort is um, is actually defining what the roles are, you know, more so than the, than the technology from that perspective. Um, personally, I think it's something that's important to do no matter what, to know who's accessing which information and who has access to what in your environment. Um, so there's both a good business reason as well as a security reason to be able to do that. And there are multiple approaches to do it fairly quickly. It also depends very much on the size and the complexity of your organization. 
Uh, one of the questions we have here is, can you define the difference between microperimeter and microsegmentation? Um, sure. Does David, did you want to take it or do you no, want to? No, I'm going to let you take that one. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So micro, I, I'm going to take a stab at it uh, because uh, uh, while I understand what it is, it might not be able to um, explain it coherently. So micro segmentation basically is um, a, a network security technique that enables security architects to um, divide the data center into distinct segments, security segments, uh, all the way down to the individual level, individual workload level, and then um, define uh, security controls and uh, deliver these um, services according to this segment. Um, so uh, for instance, uh, it would be, um, uh, like I mentioned, the portfolio. So uh, you can segment data uh, by location, by portfolio, uh, and so on, on and so forth, and make it as granular as possible. Um, uh, 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 so that would be micro-segmentation. Micro-perimeter will be um, something like uh, when it comes to the individual themselves, an individual uh, themselves is a perimeter. Um, so you've now shrunk the perimeter from the entire network down to the individual level. So that's become the perimeter. Does that make sense? Do you want me to elaborate more? I think that that sounds good. I think that's a uh, tough I, one to convey the difference, but I think that sounds good. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's quite a complex topic. So you were able to break, I think the, the way you broke it down was quite simple to understand. Um, we have so many questions. <laughs> I'm trying to get to all of them. So hang in there, um, everybody. Uh, Sebastian asked, does a zero uh, trust protect data? 100% so it cannot be deleted by anyone from the business network like so many like some blockchain cybersecurity d apps are offering I'm trying to see if I can get that There's a lot of pieces off. in there yeah so yeah. what um I, I don't know David if you wanted to take but I can take it if, if go, you want go ahead I, I might have some thoughts afterwards but go ahead. yeah so I think first of all um we should always uh be a little bit humble about the fact that we can't protect anything 100%. So, uh, but having said that, um, zero trust goes really far. So it does, um, you know, it does protect um, maybe some up, uh, upwards of 90%. But the thing is, when you're saying that no one can delete um, data, etc., that would be a policy issue. So if you're organization decides that a certain data can never be um, deleted uh, or there needs to be an audit trail, et cetera, that would be part of a policy and that would be integrated within your zero trust implementation. And, um, you know, when you talk about these uh, cybersecurity, um, uh, sorry, the crypto and some other blockchain apps, um, those can obviously be integrated into your larger network um, and of course secured the the whole thing is if things are um, apps and software is stored in the cloud and um, and individuals uh, remotely access their browsers so they don't access they first log in 
to the cloud and then they are able to uh, and then they log into their browser um then what happens is uh, and i'm saying login but that's you know through through sso or something like that they just go into the cloud they then go into the browser whatever they do in the browser within the cloud stays in the cloud and does not penetrate into your network. So if you put all these apps up into the cloud and, and that's where your employees are accessing them from, uh, then then yes, that's possible that you, know, you will keep your network secure, you can keep your data secure um, and that's really the, the essence of it. I don't know if you have anything to add, David. Yeah, maybe let's add one thing too, if I could read in a little bit what there's, you know, another thing that I think they're getting at as well is blockchain is kind of immutable. So when somebody puts something on there, you can go ahead and add a record. You could say, I did a transaction mistake, redo another transaction, but you can never change that record. Once it's there, it's permanently there. And I think in zero trust outside of blockchain, Yes, you can change records, but it's a policy issue. So in that case, if the business decides, no, you can never change it and you put the right policies as some are saying around it, then you can't. So one is more, you have the technology to enable it plus policy to do it. The other one is you actually can't do it once yeah. it's on the blockchain, it's literally there and there's no way to be able to do that. And so if that may be what in one of the, that's what I'm getting out of that kind of thing, but feel free to text back if you're thinking of something else. Yeah, and, and I'd like to add that, you know, uh, part of this uh, zero trust is like having an audit trail. So even if somebody does make a change or delete something, there is an audit trail, you know, what was uh, deleted or, or changed and who did it, when they did it, et cetera. So, um, so that can also be a mitigating factor. Great, thank you. Um, I think someone is asking a follow-up question um, to this. Um, so it's like there's a perimeter around the browser not allowing things you're looking at to not seep into your laptop in which you've opened the browser, correct? And I think that uh, this question is being asked this way, and uh, maybe I ask a question that's more relevant right before this, which is, this is great for the big guys, right? But what about the small businesses that these companies need to use by law for US federal contracts? So how do small businesses with shallow pockets start their journey with zero trust? So I think this is related to uh, the first question, which is uh, just a small business owner trying to understand in really simple terms um, what they can do in order to protect their organization's infrastructure. Um, yeah, again, uh, I would say, I think we did kind of um, touch upon this in one of the questions, which was, what can you do? Um, what can you, what is the one thing that you can do? It's really cyber hygiene, start with that. Then uh, I think in my presentation, I mentioned there were a bunch of risks, like there's um, uh, technology risk, there are remote workforce risks, ensure that you have a handle on those. Uh, and then from that, you can, uh, uh, you can go on. So again, zero trust is uh, really just now taking off. And as it uh, gains more momentum, I believe that there will be more uh, software providers, more consultants, etc., who will offer their services at much more affordable levels. Right now, I, as far as I know, uh, vendors uh, creating um, uh, 
offering um, zero trust compliance software are really either in the US or in Israel. So uh, there, you know, when you when you talk about Australia, New Zealand, um, Asia, there aren't that many and it becomes cost prohibitive sometimes because they have to pay in US dollars and all of that. But eventually, I think this will become uh, an affordable solution. And it's like I said, it's not just a, a software. Um, there is so much that you can do just by building a framework. And we've done that with some very small organizations. So it's achievable. And like I said, it's a journey. So uh, you're never going to be 100% compliant. Great. Thank you, Sana. Um, so we're coming up on our last uh, few minutes, but we have a few more questions that I'm going to shoot at David that are related to Hub Security uh, Solutions. Um, one of them is uh, asking, one of our attendees is asking, is the Hub Appliance deployed like a gateway to all your cloud or on-prem resources uh, to do all the different checks and controls before it allows a user access to a particular app or DB or resource? Ah, okay. In, um... Interesting question. So there's kind of two parts to that. One, it's a platform in and of itself that we could actually run in the cloud and you'll never see it. The other one is a hardware appliance that if you want it on premise, hardware reason uh, being in order to get that highest level of security, tamper resistant and stuff, it needs to be in a hardware appliance. Now, from that perspective, um, everything that runs, you can run everything inside of it and it has that level of, of control, of access control and everything around it to, to keep it secure. I think what you're asking, can you use it in a, in a means that it's role-based access that it has inside of it and the policies that are there and the mechanisms to access, can you use that to front end an on-premise or cloud resources to give it security and yes, we've, we've done that as well. We've actually taken that where everything is, person coming in is getting authenticated, coming into the network, the traffic's coming through there. We monitor it that way. We make sure people have access. It's literally as if you're using a hardware security module level um, authentication mechanism. It's actually at a higher level. If you think of two-factor, this is the epitome of two-factor. It's hardware-based two-factor authentication. And you can use it in that mechanism to front end what you're doing in the cloud and, and, and segment down to individual users getting access and strengthen your front end. So you could run it with everything's running inside of it, or you can actually use it as a front end authentication to protect and provide more of that, the controls you're talking about into a back end or a cloud environment, if I'm, if I'm interpreting what they're saying correctly. Yeah, I think you are. Thank you, David. Um, another question here is, can the platform, which I'm assuming um, they're referring to the hub security platform and um, be deployed in, within a cloud environment? Uh, I think you just answered that as well. Yeah, basically, yes, we'll do it either way. By the way, it tends to be the bigger companies want it on premise, the smaller companies want you to run it generally for that level of trust. Right. Okay. Well, I think that was um, our final questions. Um, we have one more here, but I don't know if we have time. Um, so maybe we we will just wrap up here. Um, unless you guys want to stretch out a few more minutes. And okay. If there's any questions we missed, by the way, just shoot us an email. 
or contact anybody, we'll get the answer back. Correct, yeah. And, um, you know. Let's do a final confidential computing. David, I'm going to shoot this out to you, but confidential computing sounds like a very interesting way to protect your data and applications. I particularly like that not even system administrators can touch the data or apps. Are there any interesting use cases of ways that confidential computing um, has enabled security processes that were not possible before? Uh, that's interesting. I'm going to use that to segue into something that I find an interesting um, use. Um, first, you know, when you have a perimeter, everybody can access anything that they want behind the perimeter. And I was talked to somebody at a, at a major medical place before, and then when they start moving that perimeter in and putting in more controls, um, it started to limit things that they could do, certain collaboration and stuff. It made it more, more challenging for them in, in certain ways. Of course, when everything was open or they just let somebody in the perimeter, everybody can share. But there's another aspect where you have such tight controls that you could start doing um, collaborative computing in a much more secure and private way that opens up certain kinds of situations. And, and I'll give you a quick example, and it's running late, so I'll, I'll just give you this example kind of quickly. Um, think of the most, to me, the most sensitive personal information you have is your genetic information. Um, there, there's a tough way to anonymize that. But the advantage is if you have multiple groups that want to do some kind of machine learning on it to do analysis, there's huge advantage to combining this into large pools of data, but you want to protect the information. At least the approach that we take in confidential computing, what it allows is five different organizations to put in all of their pools of genetic information. No one can see the other person's information and the machine learning language that's actually running, no one can even get and modify that. So you're protecting the algorithm as well. Um, not even the person running it, whoever the group is running it can get to any of the data. So now it enables you to do very, very sensitive, um, tremendous collaboration on the data and the analysis while still protecting all the privacy and the data for each person. Now the results they get to share at the end based on normal access control um, but it provides you a mechanism of doing kind of what we'll call collaborative machine learning. Where everybody can share, no one gets to see anybody else's. And that's when you start getting down to really tight controls within the environment um, of what everybody is able to do and even protecting it from that administrator themselves. Um, and I find that kind of case has, has enormous example that um, the concept of confidential computing in general adding to this is something that it enables that wasn't necessarily in it, something that you could easily do beforehand. Thank you, David. Um, Summer, did you want to add anything to that? No, I, I think David covered it. I think that's, that's good. Okay, great. Um, well, that too. I will say thank you everyone for joining us today and thank you to our speakers, David Hochhauser and Samar Kazmi. We hope that you're all staying safe and healthy uh, at home, preferably, <laughs> Not, uh, yeah. and staying safe and uh, healthy at home with your family. And we look forward to hosting many more discussions like these. Um, to learn more about RESRG or to follow Samar's work, I've shared the link already in the chat and I will share it. Um, once again, um, follow them on LinkedIn or visit RESRG's website. 
um, and to stay up to date on upcoming webinars, you can follow Hub Security on LinkedIn or Twitter so you don't miss a beat. Um, and um, I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you all Thank for joining us today. And thank you for a wonderful discussion. Yeah.